So we're going through the book of Matthew, and before we even dive into the text, we often call this the gospel of Matthew, and we have how many gospels in, anyone know, four gospels in the New Testament. And before we even dive into this idea of looking at the text, I think it's text, it's even, I think it's, I think it's important to talk about this word right here. It's a Greek word, euangelion, okay, it's a, it's a, it's the word for which we get the word we say now, gospel, gospel. And this is the, the word we translate gospel, and it's simply a word in its original language that means good news, good news, or it means a good message. So when we say the gospel of Matthew, we mean the what? The good news of Matthew, or Matthew's good news, or Matthew's good message. And this is what a guy by the name of Matthew wanted to share, but he didn't just want to share any kind of good news. He wanted to put into writing the wonderful things that Jesus did and said in his life. Because he was primarily writing to a Jewish audience, he wanted to provide examples of the power and accuracy of God's prophets who had foretold the coming of the Messiah so that he could prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did what the prophets, the prophets of where, the Old Testament, what the prophets had predicted. He fulfilled every prophecy and fit every description of what the Old Testament said would be the Messiah. Jesus was the Jewish Savior. Okay, so that's really important to get right up front. And like the other gospel writers, Matthew wanted to share about how Jesus came and how he ultimately died and was raised from the dead and how this good news, the gospel, has the power to transform our lives and the lives of everyone we meet, everywhere we go, yes, every day that we live. So how does Matthew choose to start when communicating this gospel news? Let's find out. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Here's what he says. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Okay, so if you've ever sat in a message about the book of Matthew, you'll know that every preacher will tell you, it sounds kind of strange, right? That Matthew would tell the good news about Jesus, starting with a family tree. And why would they say that? Because most people, when you think about sharing good news, you don't start with What's seemingly boring. And while this not might be the, while this may not be the exact way you would share good news about how good Jesus is, what Matthew does here is not much different than how you and I describe people in terms of who their parents are or where they grew up. In fact, this is what we often do sometimes when we're trying to describe someone. Maybe we, like you and I, you don't know them, but I know them, and so I'm trying to give you a sense of like who they are, and I'll, you know, something, and sometimes we'll say things like, uh, maybe you'll point to my daughter, Mia, and you'll go, you know, Mia, that's what? That's Phil's daughter. You don't say Leona's daughter. It's actually more accurate to say that's Phil's daughter, and uh, for those of you who know me, and those of you who know, who know, know Mia, that makes sense, right? Right? That's Mia 
is Phil's daughter. And that's when everyone goes, oh, that makes a lot of sense why she is the way she is. Now, it's not supposed to be that funny. But, but, but you get it, right? So this is what we do. This is, this is kind of what we do. We do this now, but we, we don't give genealogies, but we often describe people so we can help people understand who a person is by telling them where they came from. Because where you come from does help communicate some things about a person, doesn't it? And to the original audience of Matthew's gospel, where you came from was a very powerful tool for communicating what kind of person you were. But more importantly, it was, it was very important and a very powerful tool for communicating where Jesus came from. As we already covered, one of Matthew's goals was to prove to his audience people of uh, a deep, uh, deep Jewish heritage. He wanted to prove to them that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah they had been hoping for. And at this time, every God-fearing Jew would have grown up learning from what we refer to as the Old Testament scriptures, that God promised man, promised mankind, that, that, you know, uh, and really, actually more accurately, he promised a man by the name of David that a descendant of his would become a Messiah. And if there had to be a physical, literal Messiah, then this physical and literal Messiah had to be related, guess who, to who? To David, right? Because they knew David was promised that from his line would come this Messiah, and so therefore we had to prove that Jesus came from David. So Matthew, knowing that he's primarily speaking to a Jewish audience, and he is Jewish himself, decides, well, Let's start off, before I even tell you about what Jesus said and tell you about all the wonderful things that he did, let's start off by answering the big question first. Is Jesus a Jew? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is Jesus ultimately related to who he needs to be related to? And so Matthew gives us this genealogy. And then he does something very unusual, something a bit strange. Unlike uh, genealogies of ancient scriptures that a young Jew was typically taught from, and you can look at the book of Numbers. It's a very boring book at first glance if you don't have someone to walk you through it. But it basically, it goes through so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. It's just like... Right? But this is how they were taught to explain genealogies. Unlike that, unlike that, what he does is something very different. He actually not only lists these heads of the family, he also throws in a, a handful of women. Actually, four to be exact. And three, actually, which weren't even Jewish at all, which maybe that isn't a problem, but. Maybe the climate of today's world will tell you that your ethnic realities do matter. I know here in the United States, we, you know, we try to think like it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or general, you know, like, and 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 we try to think that we think like that as Americans because we are uh, 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 enlightened beings. But this came from Jesus, right? This this ethic came from Jesus, but around the world, and this this is the reason why. So when you watch the news. You know, seeing everything that's going on right now in Gaza and all that, and all this hatred for, for people of, eth- of different ethnic background 
Uh, and you can see that this, this did matter. And it still does matter. Even though it doesn't matter to you, it still does matter. And so he answers this question, where did he come from? And he throws in these women that weren't even Jewish. And, and not only does he throw in some women, but he seems to emphasize, Matthew seems to emphasize that some people, if you were writing a genealogy of the Son of God, you would leave out. Because his point is, remember, Matthew, your point is to convince people that Jesus is from a divine lineage and that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. But what does he do instead? Well, verse 3, it says this. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah. You know who that is, right? The twins that were born to who? Tamar. You may not know about Tamar, but let me just make it very clear that there are some verses about Tamar, Genesis 38, that some churches will not read out loud. (laughs) And I'm I'm actually not going to read it out loud today either. Not because I don't want to, but... We need to move on. We could spend forever talking about Tamar and what happened there in in Genesis 38. But a lot of churches won't read about this because they try to keep things G-rated for people who want to bring kids into the adult worship gatherings. But the reason why I mention that is because you need to know that when Matthew throws this name in, everyone familiar with Jewish history and every Jew who who grew up reading the Torah, as they got to this part, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah, and when they read by Tamar, they would have been like, what? What? What What are you doing, Matthew? And so he says, verse 3, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Minadab, Minadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, by, and then here's another person he throws in, Rahab. Rahab, now if you grew up in church, you might know who Rahab is. Anyone know who Rahab is? Show of hands. Anyone who doesn't? Maybe don't? You know, unfamiliar? Okay, okay. I need to... That's my kids. I failed. All right. Well, I'm going to teach you today. Okay? Rahab. Rahab was a woman, remember, when Joshua sent spies into the land of Canaan, the promised land. He sent in some spies to check it out. And... The person who helped them was a woman by the name of Rahab. Now, sounds like a nice name. Nice name. You know, might want to call your daughter Rahab. When you learn about Rahab, you probably don't want to name your kid Rahab because Rahab was a what? Don't, don't even say it, you're in church. Mm, don't, mm, don't say that. Don't say <laughs> she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. Okay. She was a pick-me girl. No, she's a, I don't use a, I don't know. I mean, is that the right, I don't know. That's how you say it today. The kids, no. And if you're looking at the genealogy, you'll know that the list goes on for 16 verses. So it might make sense that Matthew would spread out shout-outs of questionable people and characters so not as to come off as a shock, right? I mean, we're only five verses in, Matthew, and you've already put in two questionable characters in this genealogy of Jesus. Aren't you going to take a break for a second? No, he doesn't. Salmon, father of Boaz, by Rahab. And then he goes on, he says, Boaz fathered Obed by, and then there's another woman, Ruth. He's going to get it all out. Now, if you're a church person, especially if you're a woman, you've probably been to a conference. It was probably even called the Ruth Conference, right? (laughs) I mean, they're out there. You've probably heard about Ruth 
a lot. And the original readers were probably like, they got to Ruth and they were like, okay, Matthew. Okay, now Ruth, Ruth is a good story. I mean, she's got a whole book of the Bible dedicated to her. And while that's true, including Ruth in the argument that Jesus was the Messiah, does create a problem. Especially for Matthew's originally intended audience of people who were of Jewish descent. While Ruth had an admirable story, Ruth isn't who you would choose to point out as a part of the bloodline of the Savior of a Jewish nation. While most of Matthew's readers knew that Ruth was a, a Moabite, one of, her, one of the enemies of the Jews, if you read the scriptures, you know that Moabites, they, they were worship, worshipers of the type of Baals, or type of other gods, right? And the things, you know, things ended up working out for, for Ruth as a part of the narrative of scripture. And, and you know, there might not have been a problem, but I, I, would, I would believe that the average Jew reading this around 80 AD might have been more than slightly surprised at Matthew's choice of decision to mention her. You know, Tamar, Ruth, Boaz. Let's see, let's see. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, right? These women. Why are you doing this? Matthew goes on, he says, Obed, father of Jesse, verse 6, and Jesse fathered, oh, here we go, King David. Finally, we got it. <laughs> King David. David fathered Solomon. Yes, yes. The wisest man who ever lived. Yes. By Uriah's wife. Okay, Matthew. Now you're gone, done, mess things up. Uriah's wife. Matthew doesn't even say the woman's name. It's like, speaking of Mia, because she ain't here, it's like when Leona's like, get your daughter and tell her to whatever it is that she hadn't done, right? Doesn't even use, you, you know you're in trouble in your house when you get called your father's kid, right? right? You're not even called by name. And Matthew here, doesn't even say the woman's name, but everybody knows, everybody knows who he was talking about. Matthew doesn't even say, and whose mother, like he did for the others, was who? Does anybody, Bible scholars? Bathsheba. Instead, he makes it worse by writing, whose mother, <clears throat> catch this, was another man's wife. This is, this is literally what Matthew is saying. Jesus, the Savior of the world, comes from a lineage where even the man that you venerate is the wisest man who ever lived. Let's not forget, we don't want to talk about it, but <laughs> yeah, his mom was another man's wife. And again, you can imagine that the readers of the Old, familiar with the Old Testament history, they were like, well, why do you have to bring that up? Why do you have to bring that up, Matthew? We want to think great things about King David. We want to remember him as the man after God's own heart. We don't want to think about his flaws. The big, bad, ugly scar that David wanted to remove from his life 
was with Bathsheba, when he had an affair with the wife of one of his generals by the name of Uriah. And as if that were not enough to be ashamed of, David, some of you know this, David set up Uriah so that he would be guaranteed to die in a battle to try to cover up the fact that he had not only had an affair with this woman, but that he had gotten another man's wife pregnant. And this is, this is, it isn't the only, you read David, but it is definitely one of the most shameful moments of King David's life. And Matthew includes it. I don't think he includes it in a passing by. I think he did it in this way so you would stop, just like we're stopping right now, and going, what in the world is going on? He places this story as he's retelling the ancestry of Jesus. And and the interesting thing is that Matthew hasn't even gotten to Jesus yet. Right? This is the gospel of Jesus. And here we are. We've already set it up with so much drama. And I know it's hard to think about reading this for the first time. But if you're reading this for the first time and you don't know that Matthew is about to tell the story of the birth of Jesus, some of you know in the next coming section. We'll find about the birth of Jesus. At this point, if you're just reading this, all you can gather is that it seems like Matthew is going out of his way at best to create some kind of intrigue about the people who were related related to Jesus. The big question is, and this is what I want to kind of wrestle with this morning, is like, why would Jesus do this? Like, why, why go through all this trouble? Why, why, why would Matthew do this? Why would Matthew talk about Jesus like this? Well, I'd like to suggest some things that I think may or may not be true. These are, this is where I go from like the scripture. No, just, here's, here's what I think. I think because Matthew had spent three years with Jesus, lived with him, heard Jesus teach, saw Jesus choose to heal and saw him invite people, him and himself included, that you typically wouldn't think of as the kind of people the Son of God would invite to become part of the leadership of this new movement called the Way. I think because Matthew saw Jesus die on a cross and because he stood next to an empty tomb, because he saw Jesus risen from the dead and witnessed him commissioning his disciples to go and make more disciples and then seeing him get caught up in the air. Only to be left staring until angels <laughs> came up to him and said, why are you yet still staring? Like, what? what? Right? I think Matthew wrote all this, because he was well aware that Jesus had included what many, if not all of his readers would say, were shady characters. As the kids would say, sus. But nevertheless, Matthew chose to list them as part of the story of Jesus, with all their baggage, sins, and embarrassing stories, because Matthew knew that even though 
the gospel is about the good news of Jesus telling the good news of Jesus required communicating. This is what you need to listen to. In order to tell the good news of Jesus, it required telling with absolute clarity the heart of Jesus. Before I could tell you what Jesus did and all the cool things that Jesus said, you got to know the heart of Jesus. In Matthew 9, we're going to get there in the spring. (laughs) But in Matthew 9, Matthew writes this story. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. That was himself sitting at a tax office. If you're familiar with the way tax collectors were seen in the hierarchy of disreputable people in society at the time, you'll know that Jewish tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Being a tax collector, as a man with a Jewish background especially, was seen as betraying your nation because you were working for the bad guy, the Roman government. Some would even say that being a tax collector was betraying your God. And that any Jewish person who made a living collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of their oppressors was a traitor and often treated like an outcast. In fact, at this time, there were only two categories of the lowest of lows. You were either a sinner or, guess what, you were a tax collector. In other words, tax collectors were considered so low on the totem pole that they weren't even lumped into the same category as sinners. They had their own category of their own. And this is who Matthew was. Matthew was an embarrassment to his family. Uh, he was ostracized from all religious life. He was not allowed to go into the temple. He, he was never ceremonially clean enough to go into the temple. In other words, people didn't think, not only could he not go into the temple, but even if they were thinking about letting him in, they're like, well, you can't. I mean, come on, you're you. God would never, God would never approve of you. And so, because of this reality, Matthew's friends were other tax collectors and sinners. And so, there Matthew sits. He's sitting there, sitting there at the tax collector booth, taking people's taxes, and then all of a sudden, Jesus walks up. The picture of righteousness, holiness personified. And then he makes eye contact with Matthew. He looks him right in the eye. And while Matthew is holding (laughs) possibly the blood money, holding the taxes in his hand, Jesus looks at him and says to him, Follow me. Follow me. And what does Matthew do? Follows Jesus. And then he invites Jesus over for dinner. And then he invites his friends over to meet this Jesus. 
which we already established were the lowest of the low, right? Tax collectors and sinners. And something strange happens for some odd reason out of nowhere. It seems like the religious leaders came crawling out the woodwork. And say, I never understand this, even, even now, like when I read the scriptures, just like how all, this religious leaders seem to just pop out of nowhere. And then it appears that one or more of the religious leaders mentioned or motioned to one of the disciples to come out here. And based on what we know about ancient Jewish customs, no good Jew would ever go in or touch the property where sinners and tax collectors were gathered to party, much less a tax collector's home. And so why? Because it would take months to get ceremonial clean. And so what did they do? Here's what they did. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when they said this, he, Jesus, said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. It's at this point that you would imagine that at least, <laughs> at least one of Matthew's tax-collecting friends or sinners would raise their hand and say, um, Jesus, you, you know, we can hear you. <laughs> I know what you're trying to say to these guys, but, you know, if you're trying to win our favor, calling us sick is not kind of the way you would do that. The interesting thing is that Matthew doesn't record anyone being offended. You notice that? Because do you know what the people who are disconnected from God know? Do you know what sinners know about their own life? Do you know what people who live day in, day in, knowing fully well that they are living a life incongruent with God's standards, do you know what they know? They know that they are disconnected from God. They know. They know they're disconnected from His will and His way. They might not call themselves sinners, but they would definitely be able to say, yeah, if there was a God and He had standards about how I should live, I'm probably not living life that way. And even if there were people who were offended, what Jesus said next leaves an indelible mark on all who heard Jesus speak. Here's what he says. Go, Jesus is speaking to religious people, and learns what this means. What Jesus says next is a very, is a very, very familiar quote from the Old Testament that all the religious leaders would have been more than familiar with. Here's what he says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Think about that. At other times, Jesus would be more gentle. And he'd, he'd say it like this. Luke, Luke recorded it like this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. But it's interesting to note the way Matthew remembers Jesus and what Jesus' focus was while on earth. He witnessed firsthand that sinners were the people Jesus came to save. And whether or not Matthew's friends were offended, we know that Matthew was not offended because he, he was a sinner. And Matthew thought through and, 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 and 
considered his own story. He realized that the story he was about to tell, what he would later become a gospel, (laughs) he knew the genealogy wasn't something that was a mistake or a digression. It was a, a point. And Matthew understood probably better than any other of the gospel writers that the story of Jesus and the story specifically of what we will call the Christmas story here in a month is the story about God drawing near to those who had drawn away. And God drawing near to those who had been drawn away. It's a story about God leaning in toward those who had leaned away from God. It's about leaning in toward people who had no control over unfortunate situations, family problems, lack of knowledge, or whatever it might be, who found themselves leaning away from God. It's our friends, as we've talked about this last month, who left the faith. And Matthew understood that he needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy because those people reflected why Jesus came in the first place. As we continue uh, next week, we'll finish up the genealogy and then we'll talk about the birth of Jesus. We have a couple baby parent-child dedications next week, so that'll be a really great time. But I wanted to spend the first six verses of this this chapter because it is an acting segue for really where I feel like the Lord is leading us as a church. And if you're not catching what I'm trying to throw at you week after week, let me just be super, super, super clear. God is leading us To be a people who have heart for those who are lost. You don't have to go. But I hope you would. God is leading us to be the kind of people who not only believe in the gospel, but are the kinds of people who, like Jesus, had a heart for the lost, for those who didn't quite fit in, who weren't born from the right family, who didn't come to Jesus maybe through the, all the right avenues, and even or, or the people who, like David, knew better and went off the deep end. Jesus is leading us have a heart for people who are disconnected from him to be brought back to him. If you're not catching this, then um, I probably need to find another job where I communicate less (laughs) and just do more singing and random stuff. Maybe I'll be a stand-up comedian. I don't know. But I hope you would get the message. And even more important, I hope you would notice that God has grace on you. Because some of you, when you heard this idea of, of a person who was a sinner, maybe someone like Matthew who, who had been ostracized by family, who because of his own choices have found himself in guilt and shame. Maybe you didn't think about your neighbor, your brother, your coworker. Maybe you didn't think about that person 
that you share a cubicle with, or that maybe maybe you thought about yourself. Maybe you thought about the wrestling that you have had over and over again for maybe even decades of your life, believing the truth that Jesus Jesus loves you, but yet you're over here and you're going, I don't even love me. How could Jesus love me? And as I've said over the years, and I stole it, just so you know, most of my great sayings I've stolen. I, stole, I don't know, I, I think it, I don't know if it's Tim Keller. I, I, I'll just say Tim Keller. It seems like it might come from Tim Keller. Even if it wasn't, he probably stole it from someone else. But as I've said over the years, you need to know this. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you more. And there's nothing you have done that will cause him to love you any less. Right now, right here, Jesus loves you. Are you willing to turn to him? Right here, right now. So the action point for all of us, I would think, is that we would either come to grips with the reality that God is sending us to people that desperately need him, or we ourselves need to be the kind of people who believe with all our heart, mind, and soul and submit our lives to Jesus as loved ones by him and stop keeping him at arm's distance because we have not yet found love for ourselves. Does that make sense? Hope so.